Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 74, A Breaking of Oaths. The kingdom is in turmoil. Two pretenders fight for supremacy. On the one side, Philip of Swabia, son of the Emperor Barbarossa, brother of Emperor Henry VI and head of the House of Hohenstaufen. In the opposite corner stands Otto IV, son of Henry the Lion, protégé of King Richard the Lionheart and preferred candidate of Pope Innocent III. But the main protagonists are the imperial princes, who play the two kings against each other for their personal gain, swearing fealty one day and breaking it the next. It only ends with murder most foul. Now, before we start, just a reminder. The History of the Germans podcast is advertising free, thanks to the generous support from patrons, and you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website historyofthegermans.com. You'll find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Josh, Oliver and Alexander who have already signed up. And thanks a lot to Josh, Oliver and thanks a lot and thanks a lot to Josh, Oliver and Alexandre who have already signed up. Here we are, in the midst of a civil war. But as we will see, it isn't the kind of civil war where two determined sides relentlessly go at each other. It's much more of a very prolonged negotiation amongst the princes, interspersed with great festivals, papal bulls and the occasional military campaign that usually stalls before the walls of a mighty city. Now, let us recap the starting position of our two contenders. There is Otto IV, whose main sponsor is his uncle, King Richard the Lionheart. Richard is enormously rich thanks to the tax income from England and his extensive domains in France. Now, Richard's main objective was to get back at the Hohenstaufen, who had imprisoned and ransomed him on his return from the Crusades. He was also very fond of his nephew, and there may be a long-term option that Otto would support him in his struggle with the King of France, Philippe Auguste. Otto's second supporter is the Archbishop Adolf of Cologne. Adolf was less of a supporter of Otto than an opponent of the Hohenstaufen. Why he took so strongly against them is a little bit lost in the mist of time. He stood as a candidate for the Archbishopric of Cologne against the Hohenstaufen candidate, but he did get through, and he was invested by Henry VI. He had also opposed Henry VI's proposal to turn the empire into an inheritable monarchy, but so had many others. He did not want to elect little Frederick II, but then relented in the end and promised to crown the child. So all in, he wasn't a friend, but not a sworn enemy. In fact, there were a couple of good reasons for Adolf to oppose the candidacy of a wealth prince, who would want his old Saxon duchy back, which included Westphalia, which is the bit that Cologne had received after the fall of Henry the Lion. It looks to me a bit as if Adolf had sort of accidentally become the focal point of anti-Hohenstaufen sentiment, thanks to his lukewarm but very consistent opposition. The third and most committed set of supporters of Otto were the merchants of Cologne, who probably pushed their archbishop over to his side. The merchants were most interested in the trading privileges that England could provide. These were extremely valuable. English wool was the raw material that Florentine weavers turned into the most desirable cloth in Europe. And Cologne sat on the Rhine River, the great traffic artery that sat between these two economic centres. And this is the time when the great cities of Flanders, like Ghent and Bruges, 
were vying for that same trade. Now, these are his core supporters, the English, the Archbishop of Cologne, and the citizens of Cologne. Otto also has a second layer of supporters, which include his brother, Henry the Count Palatinate. Henry was the older brother and had inherited the majority of his father's possessions in line with the principles of primogeniture. Otto had only received a brace of castles from Henry the Lion's vast lands and had to make his own way in life. It was already a bit of a sore point in their relationship. Now we have met this Henry before. He's that same Henry who had deserted his emperor's army before Naples in 1192, who had spread rumours that Henry VI had died and had suggested the princes that they elect him instead. Now for political reasons the emperor had forgiven him, and for completely incomprehensible reasons, the aristocratic society of 12th century Germany completely overlooked this truly unchivalric behaviour. Now, two more things about Henry. He had become Count Palatinate by seducing and secretly marrying Agnes, the sole child of Conrad, half-brother of Barbarossa. Henry VI had to accept the valid marriage and even had to enfeef the wealth with the Palatinate. And final point, Henry was the initial choice of Richard the Lionheart to be the candidate for kingship. The only reason this did not happen was that Henry had been on crusade in the Holy Land when the decision was made. Another sore point in that brotherly relationship. Another member of this second layer of support was Henry, Duke of Brabant. The Duchy of Brabant encompassed most of eastern Belgium, including Brussels and Antwerp, and was an immediate neighbour to the Archbishop of Cologne. The Duke's interest lay mainly in the large amount of English money he was offered for his help and a marital alliance whereby Otto was to marry his daughter Maria. There are some others in this category, like the Bishop Conrad of Strasbourg, who had a long-lasting feud with Philip's irascible brother and hence hated all Hohenstaufens from the bottom of his heart, and the Duke of Limburg and his sons, who initially fought for Philip but were brought into Otto's camp early on in the process. So, if you look on a map, Otto's zone of control was the lower Rhine round Cologne and Brabant, and upriver in the Palatinate, as well as the family lands of the House of Wealth around Brunswick. On the other side was Philip of Swabia. He too has an inner and an outer circle. But that is where the similarity ends. Philip's inner circle are the Royal Hohenstaufen institutions, such as they exist. At its heart sits the Duchy of Swabia and the extensive Hohenstaufen possessions that stretch from the border with Bohemia in the east to Swayes of Franconia, including Nuremberg and Rothenburg, to the outskirts of Frankfurt, and then southwards through Swabia and Alsace. The second element is the royal domain, which comprises a large number of castles dotted across mostly the southern parts of Germany, but at this point also includes Goslar and Saxony with its great silver mines. With these territories come the imperial and the family ministeriales. These had already risen to prominence in the last decades of Barbarossa, but now took up key positions under Henry VI and Philip. Men like Markwart of Anweiler and Heinrich of Calden, who had served in Italy and Sicily. But also Kuno von Münzenberg, a mega-ministeriale who owned dozens of castles and even minted his own coins. Eberhard von Tannelis, Seneschal of the Empress, was another one. Ministeriales were at least theoretically unfree men who had been trained in the use of knightly weapons. By the end of the 12th century, they had become a permanent feature of the medieval German society. 
Some of them, like the ones I mentioned, were extremely rich and would even ascend to princely rank, but the vast majority were not much better off than their neighbours in the village. They were much more loyal than aristocratic vassals, but not absolutely loyal. Even ministerialis are known to betray their lords. Beyond this fairly compact and reliable power base, Philip could also count on a few natural allies. These are Bernard of Anhalt, Duke of Saxony, Ludwig, Duke of Bavaria, and the Markgraf of Meissen. These men had been the direct beneficiaries of the fall of Henry the Lion, and hence could not expect anything good from Henry the Lion's son. Other southern dukes like the Barbenberger in Austria, as well as the Zeringer in Burgundy, were linked either by family ties or financial gain. Beyond those was the wide world of the undecided. Two of those became crucial, Ottokar, Duke of Bohemia, and the Landgraf, Hermann of Thuringia. Ottokar's main interest was the title of king, which Philip granted him generously at the very start of his reign. Landgraf Hermann was most interested in expanding his territory at the expense of what had remained of the royal domain in Saxony. Basically, these two were available to the highest bidder. And then we have the foreigners. We already talked about the role the King of England played. But then we have the King of France, Philippe Auguste, who was a natural ally of Philip because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And the King of Denmark also gets involved. He wanted the lands of Adolf of Holstein, very north of the country. Because Adolf sided with Philip, Denmark sided with Otto. So, that is our chessboard. Otto has English money, Cologne, Brabant, his brother and the Danes. Philip has French support, his own lands, the royal domain and support from most of southern Germany. Next question, what are the weapons? Sounds like a stupid question, but isn't. Sure, there's military might. Armies are raised and sent against the opponents. But there are no decisive battles or even many battles at all. The two kings will face each other only once, and that is very much at the end of the conflict. Mostly, what these armies do is to go down into their opponents' territories, burn the fields, massacre peasants, and make some attempt at besieging a city, but never really succeeding. I could take you through the back and forth of the military fortunes, but the detail is excessively dull. Broadly speaking, the fighting breaks down into four main theatres of war. The surroundings of Strasbourg get devastated by Philip in an attempt to move Bishop Conrad into his camp. That is successful, at least temporarily. The other region is Holstein, which is invaded by the Danes. They chuck out Count Adolf, who had to retire, and Holstein remained Danish for 25 years. This one went to Otto. The third theatre of war was the Lower Rhine, and specifically the surroundings of Cologne. Philip would bring up an army, devastate the land, but the walls of Cologne usually held firm and Philip had to go back, either because winter was coming or because he was called into another key battleground, Saxony. Specifically, Brunswick, capital of Otto IV, and Goslar, the loyal imperial city. Neither Brunswick nor Goslar could be taken by their respective besiegers. With Saxony the big undecided piece, the Landgraf of Thuringia, whose lands were just south and east of there, became the linchpin. Both Philip and Otto courted him and he exploited the situation to the max. In total, Hermann changed sides five times through the five years of the main conflict. He would declare for Otto when Philip was otherwise engaged, capture a few royal castles and cities, and when Philip then shows up, 
He would swap sides, revert to being a loyal imperial vassal in exchange for keeping these castles and cities. Three rounds of that and the Landgrafs were properly rich. But the military was only one side of the battle. The other was public relations. Philip went on a massive spending spree, inviting all his followers and the undecideds to splendid royal assemblies. We can name 630 individuals who have come to his court, though in reality it would have been a lot more. He staged 28 of those assemblies, often outside his direct zone of influence. And for those, he put on a great show. He would appear wearing the true imperial crown, by now believed to be the crown of Charlemagne, as well as the Holy Lance and all the imperial regalia. His wife, the gorgeous and exotic Irene, would parade next to her husband in her Byzantine finery, and after the official ceremonies, it was party time. The court of Philipp of Schwaben was one of the first in Germany to sponsor the Minnesänger, the German version of the troubadours. Minnesänger would write mostly songs about courtly love, but also romances like the Parsifal of Hartmann von Aue or Tristan and Isolde by Godfrey of Strasbourg. Minnesänger would not only write of love and chivalry quests, but they can do politics too. The most famous of them was Walter von der Vogelweide, and that is the one that Philip attracts to his court. And Walter delivers. He writes several poems to praise Philip and to diss his enemies. One of those is about the most splendid royal assembly in Magdeburg over Christmas in 1199. I had thought of reading it to you, and I, I tried Middle High German, and it just sounds utterly silly and certainly not accurate. So I've put the text on the website for this episode, the link to which you find in the show notes. But I've translated it and I can say the whole thing in English. So here is the poem. On that day, when our Lord was born of a virgin whom he had chosen to be his mother, there walked in Magdeburg King Philip, glorious to behold. There walked an emperor's brother and an emperor's son in one robe, although there are three persons. He carried the real scepter and the real crown. He walked along very slowly and in complete tranquility. After him walked a high-born queen, rose without thorn, dove without gall. The decency of the whole world was united there. The Thuringians and the Saxons performed their court duties there in such a manner that even the most discerning could be highly satisfied. End of poem. These events and the sponsorship of poets in the midst of war were previously been seen as a wasteful spending, but it was probably worth a lot more than a battalion of knights. If you were one of those undecided princes in the Civil War, it could not be won militarily, where would you tend to go? To the one who keeps his purse tightly closed and seems to have no friends? Or the one where everybody parties and who wines and dines you? Apart from great festivals, the other element of soft power was marriage. Otto had the advantage of being himself available, a trump card he used to tie the Duke of Brabant to his cause. Philip was already married, but he had four daughters to offer. These were put in play at various points to different German magnates and even to a papal nephew. As for money, Philip can match the English funds thanks to the treasures his brother had sent up from Sicily the 150 mules worn down by the weight of gold and precious stones. But Otto is no slouch. We know a little less about the splendor of his court since, while well, he did not pay the right poets, but when English money was still flowing, he sure must have put on great performances. And that gets us to the other theatre of this conflict, the one 
that did not involve any Germans. And that's the first Hundred Years' War between England and France. That is ongoing and will be ongoing for most of the Middle Ages. And it's also where some military events do have a decisive impact on German affairs. The first happened in March 1199, below the walls of the small and barely defended castle of chalus chabrol near Limoges, central France. Richard the Lionheart had attacked the castle as part of a pointless feud with the Viscount of Limoges. In the fighting, a bolt from a crossbow hit the king's shoulder. The wound turned gangrene and a month later, Richard Coeur de Lyon was dead. Not before forgiving the crossbow man who had shot him, chivalric knight to the last. Richard's brother and successor, John Lackland, had much less interest in German affairs or fondness for his nephew. The great supply of cash from England began to dwindle, and when John made peace with Philip Auguste in 1204, it ceased altogether. In the absence of English money, Otto became more and more dependent upon support from Pope Innocent III. As I mentioned last week, Innocent took his sweet time at taking a decision, and when he did in 1201, he came down very much on Otto's side. He had negotiated with Philip as well, and as guardian of the young Frederick had at some point even contemplated pushing his ward's claim. But Innocent's main interest in the conflict was to protect and to expand the papal territories. In the aftermath of the death of Henry VI, almost all of Italy had risen up against the imperial administrators, and he had picked up quite a bit of it. I did say last week that Philip had stood at the empty crib of the castle of Folignano where little Frederick was supposed to have been. That... I admit, was a bit of artistic license, Philip never made it to Foligniano. His journey ended in Montefiascone, north of Rome, as local lords, encouraged by the news of Henry VI's death, besieged him. When describing this story, I did indeed use a bit of uh, what I feel was not very foul language, but some of you found it unnecessary. I personally saw it as a good way to express the distress I think Philip may have felt at that moment but I understand that some of you prefer it if I refrain from such terms and I will do my best to stick to it. The note, German is a language of prolific and very inventive swear words and where the use of them is evidenced or used in literature, I probably still will use it. Now, going back to Italy, in the chaos after the death of the emperor, Pope Innocent managed to get hold of some key positions, including the Duchy of Spoleto, the Mark of Ancona, the Pentapolis around Ravenna, parts of the Emilia-Romagna, and again, the lands of Matilda. Protecting those from imperial power became one of his key political objectives. Hence, Innocent's support for Otto was made conditional upon recognition of the papal gains and a solemn promise never to seek the Sicilian crown. Philip, on the other hand, had not been prepared to make such concessions. On the face of it, papal support did not produce much. In particular, the German bishops remained loyal to Philip. They write to the Pope stating that it is their prerogative to elect the Emperor and that His Holiness should stay out of the discussion. Only one bishop was affected by papal support for Otto IV and the subsequent excommunication of Philip, and that was his own Chancellor, Conrad von Querfurt. Conrad had been a Hohenstaufen loyalist, former Chancellor of Henry VI, and had played a major role in the conquest of Sicily and the Crusade. His change of allegiance from Philip to Otto was less for reasons of the afterlife, but was bought with the bishopric of Würzburg, 
something the Chancellor very much desired. The defection of Conrad was a major blow, both militarily and politically. It potentially opened a new theatre war, now much closer to the Hohenstaufen homelands. But Philip got lucky. Conrad had got himself in trouble in his new post. He had levied a tax on his ministerialis, and they weren't happy about it. One of them, Bodo of Ravensburg, killed the Episcopal tax collector. Conrad then pursued Bodo for the murder, to which Bodo responded by killing or the bishop himself. That solved this problem for Philip. Bodo would do penance for this murder by going to the Holy Land, returning three times richer than he was when he left. But the papal support had one great advantage. Ever since Gregory VII, the papacy had declared its right to release people from their solemn oaths. The concept that oaths are inviolate are at the heart of the political system of the Middle Ages. Vassalage is the exchange of vows, one to support the Lord and the other to protect the vassal. You may remember the speech that Otto von Nordheim made in 1073, gathering support for an uprising against Emperor Henry IV. There, he had to go to extreme lengths to justify why he was no longer bound by his oath. Here's what he said after having first listed Henry's innumerable crimes against the freedom of the Saxons. Quote, Perhaps you, as Christians, are afraid to violate the oath with which you have paid homage to the king. Indeed, to the king you have sworn. As long as he was a king to me and acted royally, I also kept the oath I swore to him freely and faithfully. But after he ceased to be a king, the one to whom I had to keep loyalty was no longer there. So not against the king, but against the unjust robber of my freedom, not against the fatherland, but for the fatherland, and for freedom, which no good man surrenders other than with his life at the same time, I take up arms, in a demand of you that you also take them up. End quote. 130 years later, the Landgraf of Thuringia and King Ottokar of Bohemia will swear individual detailed oaths to Philip to support him. The oaths are made over important relics and the princes pre-agree to the most severe temporal and spiritual punishments in case of a breach of this oath. Hostages are exchanged to ensure compliance and in the case of Ottokar, he marries the daughter of Philip. But the ink is barely dry on the document and both of these change side, not for the greater good of the realm or to escape unbearable servitude, but for short-term territorial gains. And they're not afraid of any punishment since the Pope immediately releases them from their oath. This devaluation of solemn oaths is another element in the shift in political and social culture away from the ideals of the Middle Ages. Just as the troubadours and the minnesängers celebrate the ideals of chivalry, the reality becomes more and more Machiavellian. This change of sides by Thuringia and Bohemia in 1203 coincides with the Danish conquest of Holstein and puts Philip under enormous pressure. His campaign against Thuringia fails and he finds himself besieged inside the city of Erfurt. At the end of 1203, Philip flees from Erfurt. Otto IV writes triumphantly to Pope Innocent III that he expects to have Philip defeated by the end of next year. In 1204, Philip makes a last desperate attempt, then goes straight for Otto's headquarters, the city of Brunswick. And that is where Otto makes his fatal mistake. Brunswick was initially owned by Otto's older brother, Henry the Count Palatinate. Otto had taken it over since, in it, lay the great palace of Dankwarderode, the magnificent construction of their father, Henry the Lion, 
that rivaled any imperial palace and therefore suited him as king. The loss of Brunswick was the last straw for Henry. He had already seen his own principality, the Palatinate being occupied by Philip's troops, and now, after all the pain he had experienced in the service of his younger brother, he, the eldest son, was now to give up his family inheritance. Henry snapped and switched sides, joining Philip. And then Archbishop Adolf of Cologne, the one guy who had kicked off the conflict, also switched to Philip. He may have worried about the overbearing nature of the young wealth, might still hanker after Westphalia, or it was a more prosaic donation of 5,000 mark of silver that changed his mind. This is also the time English money stops coming. Only the city of Cologne is still with Otto. In 1205, Philip can heal the defects of his initial coronation. He's crowned again, this time in the right place, the Palatine Chapel in Aachen, by the correct archbishop, his new friend, Adolf of Cologne. From there, it should have only been a question of time before Otto finally gives up. There are two more battles between Otto and the citizens of Cologne on one side and Philip and his much superior troops on the other. Otto loses both of them and is even injured in one of them. Heinrich van Calden, the great leader of Philip's army, finally arranges for the two kings to meet to resolve their differences. Philip offers Otto great terms. Otto was to marry Philip's daughter, become Duke of Swabia and King of Burgundy, he gives up the claim on the imperial crown. But Otto refuses, and even when Pope Innocent III urges him to accept, he still refuses. All the parties can agree to is a truce. But the route ahead is now clear. Otto's claim is defunct. His support is gone. Even Cologne had opened its doors to Philip. Philip is gathering a large army to dislodge him from his last remaining positions around Brunswick. His future is bleak will either have to go into exile or end his days on one of his father's castles, alone and friendless. On June 21st, 1208, Philip is celebrating the marriage of his niece, the daughter of his brother, Otto of Burgundy, to the Duke of Andex-Meran in Bamberg. It is again a splendid occasion. Many of the imperial princes have come and the groom's brother, the Bishop of Bamberg, had celebrated a great wedding in the marvellous new cathedral he's currently constructing over the ruins of Henry II's House of God. At the end of the church service, Philip retires to the cooler rooms inside the Episcopal Palace There he had asked his physicians to bleed him. He was alone with Justice Chancellor and his Lord High Steward, Henry of Waldburg. At the ninth hour, Otto von Wittelsbach, the Count Palatinate of Bavaria, enters the royal chamber, alone. Philip welcomes him, and even as Otto unsheathes his sword, the king still believes that all Otto wants to do is display his skills with a blade, as he had so often done before. But not today. This will not be a game for you today, the count screams and cuts straight through the royal jugular. The high steward tries to intervene but is struck down. Otto and his men can flee. Philip of Swabia is dead. The first royal assassination since Merovingian times and one of only two in the Holy Roman Empire. And in this power vacuum steps his opponent, Otto IV, the much defeated but still anointed king. Almost immediately, all imperial princes recognize Otto IV as a rightful king and heir. Philip's wife, the majestic and tragic Queen Irene, flees to Swabia, to a monastery close to the family seat of the Hohenstaufen. There she dies two months later in childbirth. 
The civil war is over. One question remains. Why did Otto von Wittelsbach kill his king? The contemporaries ascribe the murder to injured honour. Otto von Wittelsbach had been promised a daughter of King Philip in marriage. This offer was made shortly after the king had to flee from Erfurt when his chips were down and he needed Otto's support. But then things improved for him and Philip cancels the marriage agreement, offers the girl to someone else. Is that indeed what happened? A recent essay claimed that the act was part of a wider conspiracy that included the groom, the Duke of Andex, his brother, the Bishop of Bamberg, and the Duke of Bavaria himself. All these men were loosely related as members of the wider House of Wittelsbach and had their power base in what we now see as Bavaria. It was suspicious that both the Duke of Andex and his brother, the Bishop, fled immediately after the murder. But this theory is now widely dismissed, in part because the evidence it was based on was badly put together. And further, it's very unclear what benefit these protagonists would have drawn from killing Philip. As things stood, the conflict between Ralph and Weiblingen was a honeypot for the magnates. As long as it continued, they could demand money, titles, marriages and privileges in exchange for their continued loyalty. Killing one of them would bring tighter, more centralized royal power. But if Otto acted alone, what does that mean? Was he simply a particularly prickly man who could not control himself? Or was he acting within the context of the honor code of the times? German historians of the period have recently focused more and more on honor as a broader social concept. They conclude that honor, i.e. the loss or gain of reputation within the aristocratic class, is crucial to maintaining political and economic positions. A lord who cannot defend his honor risks losing his vassals and subsequently his military and financial resources. Now, I'm not really qualified to give an opinion on that, but I notice that broken marriage agreements are quite common as alliances are shifting back and forth. We've already talked about the devaluation of oaths and the machiavelization of society. Hold that against the one isolated case of royal assassination and my money is on Otto being exceptionally prickly or has indeed suffered some massive humiliation by Philip. Otto never got to explain his actions. Heinrich von Calden, most feared of the Hohenstaufen ministerialis, hunted him down and in a barn somewhere in Bavaria cut off his head and threw it into a river. Next week we'll see how Otto IV, the only wealth on the imperial throne, will fare. Let us find out what is left of the royal infrastructure and income after ten years of handouts to imperial princes, and most crucially, will his alliance with Innocent III hold against the political train tracks of the empire. Before I go, let me thank all of you who are supporting the show, in particular the patrons who have kindly signed up on patreon.com slash historyofthegermans. It's thanks to you this show does not have to do advertising for mattresses or, as I've recently heard, energy supplements and pension plans. If Patreon isn't for you, another way to help the show is sharing the podcast directly or boosting its recognition on social media. If you share, comment or retweet a post from the history of the Germans, it's more likely to be seen by others, hence bring in more listeners. My most active places are Twitter at Germans History and my Facebook page, History of the Germans podcast. As always, all the links are in the show notes.